Welcome to the Contemporary Controversy Podcast. My name is Chad and I am the host on the show. On today's show, we have a very uh, special guest with us who caught me by surprise. He is the leading businessman, thought leader, and author of two wide-read books. Scott co-founded Signature Bank in 2001. The bank has become one of the best banks in New York for private business owners. He wrote his second book, In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. And he has been recognized as one of the best books in 2018 by the Mosaic Authors and Earned Finalist Reward from New National Jewish Books. He gives talks around the country and is interviewed on TV, radio, and podcasts many times throughout the year. And he is the son of a Holocaust survivor. Welcome to the show, Scott Shea. Yeah, Scott, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, definitely. Well, I was caught by surprise uh, to be introduced to you through, uh, I want to give a shout out to Expert Bookers for reaching out to me, um, but we're super excited to have you on the show. Um, from my understanding, I think we come from a little bit different backgrounds on faiths, uh, but I love that because I like to have conversations with people from varying backgrounds. So let's start off with that. I actually bought your book this week and have been listening to it. You're clearly an intellectually astute and erudite uh, person if you've bought my book. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I figured if I'm going to have you on the podcast, I better buy the book. <laughs> so I bought the book and bought the audio version and started listening to it while I was at work this week. <laughs> That's so, great. Would you mind just sharing kind of where you're from, what your background is and all that? Sure. So I've had a faith journey too. My father, as you mentioned, was a Holocaust survivor. I grew up because of that inculcating essentially some of my father's issues and thinking about the world faith. So let me just give you a, a couple of words of background. My father was born in Svexner, Lithuania. Okay. And before he had his 14th birthday, the Nazis entered and murdered his father, his brothers, his aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, virtually everybody he knew. My closest relative is a second cousin once removed. Wow. And he was deported to a work camp. Uh, he ended up uh, after the work camp at Auschwitz, where after three months, he was, quote, unquote, lucky enough to be moved to a work detail in Warsaw, essentially cleaning up after the Warsaw Ghetto massacre. And then he was sent to Dachau. When he was released from Dachau, he was less than 70 pounds. Hmm. And he was had the, again, good fortune, if you will, in a funny kind of ironic way. Um, but it was he was he was liberated by the American forces who sent him to an American field hospital. And he was in the hospital for the best part of a year, for a year or so. And he ended up in Chicago because a doctor in Chicago whose name should be since you're giving a shout out. Let me give a name of someone whose memory yeah. should be a blessing. Julius Mayer sponsored him sight unseen, said, whatever costs there are, I'll pay. And. My father arrived to Chicago where he married my mother and had a child. Um, and he knew that there were so many miracles that had gotten him from Svexner to 
Chicago in one piece, alive. I mean, little things. If he was sitting, if he was one foot or one person to the right, one person to the left, one person ahead, one person behind, he would have been dead. You know, so many little miracles. If that book I'm looking on your on your left, if that book or whatever on the oh, top yeah. of your shelf was instead of on the left, it was on the right, he would have been dead. So many things were so small. And so unlike some, because he could see that, he didn't really, it wasn't a matter of faith. He was certain there was a God yeah. because God had brought him on this journey. At the same time, he was also angry at God because his family was wiped out. Yeah. And God could have also created miracles yeah. and also changed fate. And so he grew up in this, I grew up in this environment where my father knew there was a God, was grappling, but all his life was grappling with, anger may not be the right word, but uh, certainly more than being perplexed, let me yeah. put it that way, as to how this all happened, why this all happened, how a good God could allow such things to happen in the world. So I struggled with those issues to some degree as a child in terms of thinking about it. And that led me on a lifetime faith journey. And in good faith, basically answers some of those questions. For a believer, the hardest question is how an all good, all you know, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient God allows evil to happen. That is the hardest question yeah. for believers. And that's the question that atheists, frankly, throw right back at believers. Yeah. And so I spent a lifetime grappling with those, and we can get into that even more. Yeah, that's, um, so I was actually thinking about this uh, as I was listening to the book and whatnot um, about how you talk uh, coming from a Jewish background. Obviously, the Torah plays a huge part in all of that. Sure. Um, and so I feel like you're probably more of an Old Testament guru than I ever will be. <laughs> but knowing that, uh, I was thinking do you run across like the perspective from atheism? Obviously I know that there's um, a lot of doubts that they have because they say, why do good things happen to bad or why do bad things happen to good people and whatnot? But do you think that one of the biggest hesitancies, I guess with the atheist background is because of the old Testament, because I, I look at, or I look at both sides. I'm, you know, old Testament, mm -hmm. new Testament. I believe sure. that Jesus rose from the dead and all that. Um, but the old Testament, obviously there's genocide and slavery and you talk about that some in your book. So maybe could you unpack that? Have you seen that that's been a hiccup for people? So let me say two things, uh, to start 80%, at least to the people, if you've, you've clearly looked at my, what I've been doing, at least 80% of my appearances, podcasts, it used to be pre COVID in person, yeah. were to Christian groups. So the book has actually resonated. And if you could see Cardinal Dolan was one of the folks I talked to. I've talked to people who are evangelicals. Um, I've really tried to span the belief yeah. because to a certain degree, 
belief has, it's a pretty wide tent, believing in, we believe in the same God, clearly. Uh, so, I've, and I've also talked to a lot of atheists. And I'll say this, and I'll say this, because this is, I think this is important. I don't think atheists are angrier at the newer, the Old Testament, honestly. Okay. The Hebrew, as I like to call it, the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures. Yeah. The Torah, the, the Torah is part of the first five, is the five, first five books of Moses for any of your listeners. Um, and there's something different going on with many atheists in that they too, and I found this very interesting. I didn't realize this really until I started writing my book is that a lot of atheists are also strangely angry at God because they think if there is a God, how are we in the shape that we are? Yeah. And so that anger to some degree for some, and I'm not saying all, but I've yeah. certainly met atheists that this is true for that anger at God translates into a denial of God, you know, the ultimate canceling, if you yeah, will. Yeah. Um, and what I would say to you with respect to the issue. So what I did in my book, one of the sections of my book was it's, it's section two is dealing with all the so-called bad parts of the Bible, you know, yeah. all the awkward parts yeah. of the Bible. <laughs> and that's, and I focus on the Hebrew scriptures, the old Testament. Yeah. And what is really going on there? Because the notion of uh, genocide in the Bible is, I would say a gross oversimplification. I mean, if you look at the Bible, the beginning, when, I think it's chapter 16 where, um, chapter 14 where, I'm sorry, where, where, where Abraham speaks, first speaks to God. And actually, I think 14, 14, 14 15, or 16. Mm -hmm. I don't want to look it up right now. <laughs> but um, where God says to Abraham, be aware, your children are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And they have to be slaves in Egypt because the iniquity of the Amorite, the iniquity of the people in this land of Canaan are not yet complete. Yeah. And it's very interesting that the people of Canaan are, are receive their punishment after they do many things like sacrifice their children, like do a whole bunch of other really, really bad stuff after being given a big and long warning. And don't forget the Israelites were wandering in Sinai for 40 years and they knew where the Israelites were headed. Even Rachav says in the, in Jericho says, you know, we're scared. We know what's happening. We were wondering about it. Everybody's fully informed, but nobody changes their ways. And if you read in Joshua, it even says there had people repented it would have been okay. The Gibeonites, yeah. as you may recall from, from the book of Joshua, make a false pack with the, uh, with the Israelites. They lie about the fact they say they're not really from Canaan. Hmm. And yet that pact is honored. The um, Gergashites are mentioned as one of the seven 
Canaanite tribes. And they're mentioned in the Torah, in the five books of Moses. But then when Joshua gets there, they, they got the message because they're never mentioned again. They clearly packed up and left. So it's not a genocide per se, because it's not a genocide period, because anyone who wanted to repent, and this is clear from Joshua, I think it's 10.4 in Joshua, anybody who wanted to repent, anybody who wanted to give up the ways of child sacrifice of Molech could do so. Yeah. And there was no commandment anywhere for the Israelites to chase those people down outside of Canaan, but yet their immorality in Canaan invalidated their ability to be in that promised land, to be in that holy land. Hmm. And let me just be clear what I think. I'm going to put this in business terms. Yeah. God is the global realtor and our actions are our mortgage. If we do the right thing, we can keep our lease on wherever yeah. we are, on our lives, on our livelihood. But if we act immorally and we do it over 400, first 400 years and then 40 years, well, plenty of notice has been given. And at some point, I think believers do believe in reward and punishment. Hmm. And, and so I, I think talking about genocide in that way. And again, if you read the Torah, or if you read the five books of Moses, clearly it says it only specifies banishing or getting rid of the Canaanites who were in the land. Yeah, It never talks about anything racial or genetic or the like. Um, and if they go someplace else, you know, they should go in good health. Yeah. Well, you've even said in interviews that I've watched you talk, talk about this toward atheists um, and not all atheists, but atheists will tend to pick and choose what yes. suits the argument. And I mean, Christians do the same thing. So, but so one of the other things that I want to touch on is you talk a lot about idolatry. Mm -hmm. um, what is, what is the obsession there and why is it so important for believers to understand what idolatry is well i think we should be obsessed about idolatry and it's sadly in this in this country and in this modern age we've returned to idolatry in, in too many ways i mean we thought and i thought growing up you know what idolatry that's all about the god king pharaoh 3300 years ago we killed the guy we killed you know we destroyed pharaoh his arm his army it's all over it's fine but in reality idolatry was, was the guiding force of the world pre the five books of Moses, pre the Torah. And unfortunately, it's remained a powerful force because here's what the Bible says. And I challenge anybody to come up with the Bible saying something else. Because remember, the Bible conveys messages through stories. Mm -hmm. The Bible basically says that idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpowers to finite beings like you and me or the God King Pharaoh or ideologies or natural processes or in the ancient world to some degree animals, but not that not so much anymore. So we thought we licked idolatry, but no, 
Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family. You can go, I can go on and on. Hitler, of yeah, course. I was going to say Hitler. Yeah. All uh, turned themselves into God kings where they could do whatever they wanted because of their God ideology. So how did Stalin get away with starving a quarter of the Ukraine, killing all the kulaks, um, banishing tens of millions to the gulag? And, and, and how did, how did, Mao, how did Mao, Mao Zedong get away with causing the death of 75 million of his countrymen and is ascribed to have said that it would have been okay if 300 million would have died, uh, if that would have ensured the success of the Chinese Communist Party because the commun communism became a, a idolatrous religion. It's because, and, and they use the same tropes as Pharaoh. Here's the amazing thing. They use poetry and pageantry and theater and myth, all backed up like Pharaoh with secret informers and powerful police and armies. Mm -hmm. They did the exact same thing. And it's the thing about, I, the thing about idolatry is it goes to the most fundamental fundamental that's why i'm obsessed about it principle that belief in the bible came to do and this is in the hebrew scriptures and in the christian scriptures which is to recognize that everybody else is an image of in the image of god and that's why we have the golden rule don't do unto another person what you wouldn't want done unto you yeah it's expressed in the positive and negative ways in the hebrew scriptures and christian scriptures so mao certainly wouldn't have wanted to have himself killed, Stalin wouldn't have wanted to send himself to the gulag. You have to think of others as having that spark of divinity within them. You can't think of them as classes. You can't think of them as others, that if they belong to your God, King infrastructure, they're good. If they belong to some other God, King infrastructure, their lives are worthless, they're vermin, um, they're non-human, and they could be killed at a whim. Yeah. So that's well, why I'm so obsessed by it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a very interesting perspective. Honestly, I'd never really thought of it in the perspective in which you put it on paper. Um, and just the perspective of once they gain that power, which is probably a slow process in gaining that power and a lot of manipulation that goes into it. Um, they are able to do horrific things. Um, now, knowing like, big things like that have happened. Do you think something like the Holocaust could ever happen again? Sadly, I do. Yeah. I wish I didn't. Yeah. It would make my father who passed away a number of years cry to say that, but sadly we have had other demonizations. What happened in Rwanda, you know, with the, Hutsis, Hutus and Tutsis, um, you know, where one side demonized the other uh, to and, and used some of the same, again, tropes. Hmm. Um, we've had, uh, we certainly have had, um, I mean, if you're talking about uh, with the, uh, this is a Christian podcast, I mean, in yeah. the Middle East, what's gone on with the Yazidis, the cops, um, the Assyrians, 
mean, a lot of those Christian groups have been, uh, haven't been wiped out, but they've been demonized. Yeah. They've been compared to, you know, again, vermin or non, not of the same status as others. And that's really scary. Yeah. So the answer is sadly, I don't rule it out. It's on each of us to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, I want to give you an example of idolatry, though, in a day-to-day form. Because I think that's important. You know, we can talk about these macro political events. But I, I, I want to. I really do want to uh, leave folks with with this. Yeah. It all idolatry also happens in business in organizations. So how did Charlie Rose and Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer and the list goes on and on of people who committed abuse, sexual abuse, yeah. and got away with it for decades? Well, Charlie Rose. And these are, and many of these others turn themselves into idols. At CBS, Charlie Rose was unquestioned and unquestionable. What she said was truth. He didn't have superpowers, but he certainly had super authority. Harvey Weinstein could decide if someone's career, to a certain degree, could could cause a career to make it or break it. So he had a super authority, and again, he was unquestioned. This is what Charlie wants. This is what Harvey wants. They were mini God kings. Yeah. And it's not easy to overcome God kings. Don't forget, Moses wandered 40 years. He had a flea. He wandered 40 years before he came back to Egypt. And there was no guarantee that he was coming back. He knew that by standing up to the God king, he gave up being a prince of Egypt. He gave up all the accoutrements of being a rock star. You know, and and went to shepherding sheep and having manure on his sandals if he was fortunate enough to have sandals. So there's a big cost to going up against God kings in or in any kind of organization. And to a certain degree, that's our test. You know, I think I think all believers, I think internalize that life is not meant to just be it, it life is full of tests will we yeah. do the right thing or the wrong thing and sometimes the costs are high and yeah. that's faith is what hopefully brings you through that yeah no doubt and honestly j- just you talking about that it kind of makes me think like some of these leaders like hitler and even some of these celebrities you mentioned who they get away with these things for several years it's, it's almost like they create this cultish-like atmosphere to where, you know, any kind of cult that you know of, if you question your leader, it's like, shh, don't say anything. You even find that in some Christian circles, too, like known cults within the Christian world, is if the moment you question your leader, it's they, they silence you. And obviously, that's a huge that's scary. And that's, I think you bring up a good point of why we need to be so attentive to those things around us. Well, there's no doubt you hit the nail on the head uh, on the head. Thank you. Um, (laughs) The, uh, because what, here's what it's all about. It's about that the leader converts himself into an idol. And 
if once you can't question someone, you become an idolater in monotheistic clothing. So we count the, the, the Ten Commandments a little differently. I think you count it as the second commandment in many Christian in many Christian denominations. I think the Catholics also count this as the third commandment, as do the Jews. The, Jew, the, the third commandment is don't take God's name in vain. Don't take God's name in the Hebrew is Bashav. What does that mean? It's not, it's much more deeper. And by the way, look it up. It's the only commandment for which there is no redemption. If you read everything else, you can, you can repent. That one you can't repent for even. So taking God's name in vain, what does it mean? It's not, in my view, although we shouldn't, swear using God's name yeah. or the like. It's not a good idea. What taking God's name in vain means is saying, I have a direct conduit with God. I can tell you what to do. You don't know. I have this direct intercom to God and, and, and God is telling me. And essentially that weaponizes monotheism, but it's really idolatry. Because yeah. once I say I'm the sole spokesperson for God, I'm turning myself into an idol. It may as well be some other ideology. So if you look at the, if you look at the, certainly the Hebrew scriptures, and I'm more familiar with them than the Christian scriptures, but whole books about, you know, everywhere, Abraham questions, yeah. Jacob questions, Moses, Moses has deep questions. Um, all of the prophets, Ezekiel, what are you doing to me? Yeah. Uh, I, I, it, 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 you know, how can I even do this? Isaiah questions. He doesn't want the, the job of prophet. Um, I mean, I can go through, you know, yeah. um, um, Elijah. Um, I think um, Jeremiah is a big questioner. God asked him to buy land in Israel. And uh, just as the, the Babylonians are about to conquer it, and, and he says, like, what are you doing? This is the worst real estate deal. I mean, how can you, God, ask me to do this real estate yeah, deal? Yeah. Uh, even a newbie knows this, and you're the almighty. And God says, no, this is what you got to do. Ultimately, the prophets obviously submit to what God wants, and they do what God wants, but they're questioning, questioning, questioning. And I think that's what we're supposed to do. And in the Hebrew, in the, in the Christian scriptures, people question Jesus all the time. I mean, yeah, he doesn't say yeah. you aren't allowed to question me. Oh, no. He gives them answers. Most of the time he, he gives them a question back. <laughs> that's you, 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 that's exactly what I was, that's exactly <laughs> right. It's all about questioning. And if we look really deep, hopefully we're going to recognize that everybody else is made in the image of God, just like we are. Everybody has that spark of divinity. And it's about questioning, questioning, questioning. Yeah. And if yeah. you don't question your leader, if your leader says, don't question me, that's that's the first sign that you should turn very slowly, 180 degrees, and then run as fast as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, you think about it. Idolatry is the reason for God's corruption or, or uh, the reason that corruption happened within God's creation, because the moment God created everything, you know, Adam and Eve come on the earth and he says, don't eat from the tree. What do they do? They eat from the tree, but it's 
um, the serpent that comes in who wants to play as a God and wants to play that godlike figure and seduces him in. And then many other people within the Old Testament uh, and some in the New Testament too, to where they create themselves into this godlike figure to where people just follow them. And so I think that's really, uh, it's interesting because that is how essentially God's corruption or God's corruption, God's creation has become corrupt. Well, let's take that story a little more because it's one of the fundamental stories of humanity. Yeah. So as long as you bring that up. uh, So the first chapter of the Bible is so beautiful. It's God's effortless creation. God speaks logos and things happen. The universe is created. It is so beautiful. The English is the same. The, the, the King James version is beautiful. The Hebrew is so beautiful. I mean, it's almost worth learning Hebrew to read the first chapter of the Bible. It's so beautiful. Then you come to the end of that first chapter, the last five or so of the last five or so verses of the, of the first chapter, three of them talk about what you're talking about creation, the universe, life. Then you get to the, to, to, to the people, to human beings of the five verses talking about humans, three of them talk about our menu. They talk about human beings. You can eat the fruit or you can eat the vegetables or the grains, or whatever kind of things that grow. But animals, you can't. You can only eat the grains and the vegetables. You can't eat the fruits. Really strange. And the Hebrew, and I think the English too, just like we're so used to reading it, we read right over it. 99% of the people who I ask, even who really study the Bible, don't really, yeah, the last part of the first chapter is talking about what people are going to eat. Because we lived at that time in God's creation, a predatorless society. You never needed to look what was happening over your shoulder. No animal needed to be worried about being eaten. The humans didn't need to worry about being attacked. And then what happens then in chapter three? And this, I think, is in a certain degree, a fundamental sin that causes so many other sins is there's a snake. And what does the snake want to do? The snake wants to, what do you think yeah. the snake, what is I the mean, snake's he, motivation? The, the snake's motivation is to deter Adam and Eve from what God has told them not to do or to God told them you can eat from any tree in the garden, right. except for this one. But here, let me throw something out. The snake feels like it says the snake is the most, is the character this is a character. You don't have to take, you know, the snake character says probably is resentful. He's just as smart as the people. Yeah. They can eat the fruit. He can't. So what does he want? He wants to make it where the fruits they can't eat. The the humans can eat and he can eat fruit too. He's resentful. And so he can't attack God because God's this massive overwhelming force of nature uh, is nature is more than nature. So what he does is he attacks God's people. And that's the way of attacking God is to undermine, undermine his people, which then of course causes a whole bunch of other stuff to happen. And he does it so 
smartly because he actually never really lies. Yeah. If you read him close, you read him close. He never lies. He does what idolaters are great at. He creates a false theory. God said, don't eat the fruit. God never said, don't touch the fruit. But the snake says, well, you know, can you touch the fruit? Did it kill you? No, it didn't. Well, maybe yeah. if you can touch the fruit, you can eat the fruit. You know, he never actually lies. He creates a false ideology. It's a mini ideology because there's yeah. not much going on. But it's exactly from this. He sets the playbook of idolatry, of false ideologies forever. Yeah. And I think that's what's sometimes missed. It's such a powerful story. Yeah. Um, and it's got all kinds of implications, Christian implications, Jewish implications, a lot of implications. Yeah, because from the Christian scriptures, I mean, it, it, Satan's temptation with Jesus, it does the same thing. I mean, there's this manipulation of words to try to get him to fall, essentially. <laughs> well, Scott, um, I know that you're going to have to go here uh, shortly, um, but is there anything else like last that you would like to share to the audience listening? Sure. I'd like to say if you if if people remember one thing about this, remember the golden rule is the key to everything. Uh, if you can all find the spark of divinity in other people and don't do unto someone else what you wouldn't want to done unto you in business and life. I think that's great. I'd encourage people. Uh, to uh, follow your intellectually erudite path. You can get my book on Amazon. You can get my book at quality bookstores almost anywhere. Um, it's now out in paperback. It had two print editions and is now in paperback. It says you mentioned out in Audible. I have a website, scottshay.com, which uh, S-H-A-Y, which I write about sometimes contemporary issues. Um, sometimes business issues and other issues. And um, the other thing I'd say is there's a number of churches and synagogues around the country that are using my book as a, uh, in, in a sort of book group. And if you go on my website, you can also find uh, study guides and, uh, you know, you can join up actually okay. with others. Uh, it's really been a remarkable journey and I'm really so grateful that I can be part of helping other people think about faith and yeah. recognize that I'll say one other thing, if I could end with this, yeah. I've talked to a lot of atheists in this journey. You probably saw the, the Google book talk that I did. Most people that I spoke to there were non-believers. And I think it's, we, need to be as believers robust in our faith understand our faith and be able to answer the atheist we have nothing to be embarrassed about yeah. being believers yeah well that's awesome scott um i'm super glad that you decided to join us today um, i'll be dropping all of that information in the link in the youtube link below once everything's uh, up and ready to go um, so that people can find you and buy your book um, so thank you so much for joining the Contemporary Controversy podcast. We'll see you next time.